Well, the, uh, the three talks, at least from my perspective, uh, that we've heard so far, the, the plenary talks have been very challenging and uh, surprising. Uh, well, having heard uh, John Teamstra talk before, I expect uh, more of the same, um, challenging and, and surprising. Uh, John is a professor of economics at Calvin College. He received his Bachelor of Arts degree from Oberlin College and his PhD in economics from MIT. Uh, in addition to serving the Association of Christian Economists in a variety of capacities, uh, he currently serves on the editorial board of our journal, Faith and Economics. Uh, he's a past president of the Association for Social Economics. John's work has focused on methodological issues surrounding the integration of Christianity and economics. His teaching responsibilities include a Christianity and economics course. His many publications include the books Reforming Economics, Calvinist Studies on Method, and Institution and Economics, a Developmental Approach, which is a one-semester textbook on economics. Well, thank you all very much for coming and, and for staying through the end of a long day. But um, I don't know how entertaining this is going to be, but we'll, we'll, uh, it, it, I, I hope you'll find it interesting. Uh, to begin with, I want to talk a little bit about my perspective on the relationship between Christianity and mainstream economics. And my apologies to those of you who have read some of this before in some of the things I've written, but I know not all of you have read things I've written, so I'm, I'm kind of summarizing some of it to get you up to date. And I, I don't want to, uh, I, I want to go on from there uh, and spend most of the time on that. So, so here it is, uh, the, the neo-Kyperian version of, of faith and economics. As Christians, we need to bring to our scholarship and science all that we know, both from our observation of God's handiwork in creation and from our reading of God's written word. Our economic science must be founded on our understanding of humankind made in God's image with awareness, reasoning, and moral consciousness. And as the three persons of the Godhead live together in society, so too human beings live in society with and for each other. In the fall, humans have become infected by sin and so are capable of wrong actions as well as right ones. The line between good and evil runs through the heart of all human institutions, be they churches, schools, businesses, unions, markets, political parties, or governments. All are prone to fail the moral test, and all, as all are capable of responding to God's norms of goodness and love. So as Christians, we can never fully embrace an economic science founded on individualism and hedonism and can never accept an economic ideology based on the infallibility of some human institution. The heterodox approach to the integration of Christianity and economics as it developed in the 1970s and 80s thus begins with what I have called the dual critique of neoclassical economics. And I called it that in a... Um, uh, an article I wrote that uh, was really a summary of the literature up until that point. I wrote it in 1990. It appeared in the Christian Scholars Review in 1993. The ethical critique disputes the account neoclassical economists give of human nature, particularly the assertion that all relevant human motivation stems from a natural and laudable drive to maximize one's standard of living. 
This forecloses consideration of how human behavior responds to the great commandment to love God above all and one's neighbor as oneself. The implication that economic institutions and policies should be aimed at efficiency and growth is also brought into question since it does not comport well with the Christian social ethics implied by the great commandment. That's the first prong, the ethical critique. The second prong is the methodological critique, which first denies that positive economics can be value-free, as is often claimed. Second, it questions the orthodox preoccupation with statistical evidence to the exclusion of experimental evidence, survey evidence, and narrative history. This is partly a consequence of an unhealthy preoccupation with mathematical model models to the exclusion of other forms of analysis. Um, we've been talking today about, you know, who, who people studied with. Larry studied with Gary Becker and, and uh, George Stigler. Uh, my doctoral dissertation supervisor was Charlie Kindleberger, the great, great proponent of historical economics, as he called it. So you know where I'm coming from. Economists who accept the validity of the dual critique are faced with the problem of how to do economics outside the mainstream. Most fall in with one or another of the heterodox schools, post-Keynesian economics, institutionalism, or the social economics tradition. The social economics tradition uh, grew out of uh, Catholic social thought in Europe and the attempt of European economists to, to um, uh, work out the implications of Catholic social thought for economics. Uh, a few wind up in the Austrian camp. Others are convinced of the need for a distinctively Christian economic theory, and they have produced some interesting analyses. Many of these efforts overlap, since none of these schools offer a general canonical model in the way that neoclassical economics does. So now I want to talk a little bit about postmodernism and that, how that's affected our understanding of the relationship of faith and learning. While postmodernism is not a new thing, it did not have much impact on our discipline until economists began to produce serious methodological works in the middle 1980s. The postmodern message confirms what both parts of the dual critique had maintained all along. Contrary to the assertions of logical positivism, all theory is value-laden. It is not possible to do science without dragging into it all of your personal baggage including not just your personal history, but also your social position, your values, and, not least, your faith. Some founders of the approach may have wanted to explode all grand controlling meta-narratives or foundational beliefs on the ground that none can be proven valid, but it is no more possible to do that than it is to shed your own skin. Christian postmodern realists were able to carve out a place for a distinctively Christian scholarship. The implications of this are truly startling. A science founded on a Christian worldview can be just as valid as one founded on a naturalist worldview, or a Marxist worldview, or a libertarian worldview, or whatever you want. Some Christian philosophers who were early proponents of this approach uh, became highly esteemed in their profession. New societies of Christian scholars were founded in many academic professions in the 1980s, including, of course, the Association of Christian Economists, which is why we're here. At the same time, many new heterodox learned societies were founded, including, for example, the International Society for Ecological Economics, the Society for the Advancement of Socioeconomics, and the International Association for Feminist Economics. Many traditional uh, Christian undergraduate colleges, like, for example, Calvin and Wheaton, developed a new emphasis on faculty research and scholarship, 
And many Christian universities, research universities like Baylor or Notre Dame, uh, developed new interest in the integration of faith and learning. The postmodern move not only confirmed the idea that theory is value-laden, but it also reinforced the rest of the methodological critique. The preoccupation of economists with mathematical models and statistical tests was a byproduct of the positivist anointing of the naturalist worldview. If we did not have to accept naturalist foundations, economics did not have to model physics, as it had for so long. So we could ask people what they were up to and pay attention to what they said. The controlling meta-narrative of a canonical general theory is shown to be unnecessary to a scientific approach. This has helped convince us that values and religious commitments matter to economic behavior. A brief aside. Uh, Christian interest in the integration of faith and learning is no longer widely stigmatized in the larger academic world, though being a heterodox economist is certainly still, uh, still difficult. Um, that's, that's probably going to be controversial with some of you, I imagine. Um, therefore, the pressure to become more secular and a drive for academic prestige is no longer as strong as it was, as I like to say, back in modern times. Christian college and university presidents who are terrified of the, their institutions going secular, and we can all name a few of those, can relax a little. There are more and more excellent Christian research scholars interested in the integration of faith and learning, and hiring them will not hurt the institution's academic reputation at all, uh, even if they don't belong to a particular denomination. Uh, at Calvin, we used to have trouble finding young economists who knew what they were talking about, who knew what we were talking about. They knew what they were talking about, but, but they didn't know what we were talking about when we talked about faith and learning. Now we find quite a few who have read some good stuff, uh, before they come to us about the integration of, faith, uh, of Christianity and economics. And in fact, some of them are already members of ACE, and, and ACE has been a valuable tool for a lot of Christian colleges in that way. On the flip side, Calvin and other Christian colleges have been raided for Christian scholars by some of the best universities in the country, though this is still not as common in economics as it is in some other disciplines, like philosophy and history. Now I want to move on and, and talk about the status of the general canonical model in economics. And that's going to be the, well, larger part of what, we, what, what I want to discuss this evening. <clears throat> so the heading here in italics is the canonical model has been discredited. The greater openness to new forms of evidence, together with a growing embarrassment about the lack of sound psychological foundations for economics, has led to the gradual discrediting of the neoclassical canonical model and its abandonment for research purposes. This was helped along by the postmodern suspicion of all controlling general theories. And when I say the general canonical model, what comes to my mind first is Paul Samuelson's Foundations of Economic Analysis, or if, if you prefer, uh, Sir John Hicks's Value and Capital. You know what I'm talking about. In fact, Larry, at, uh, at luncheon today, uh, gave a very valuable summary of it, Gary Becker's summary of it, right? Maximizing behavior, stable preferences, and market equilibrium. That's what we're talking about. I think economists were first brought up short by some evidence that came in over the transom, as it were, from social psychology at a time in the 1970s when economists were becoming interested in establishing a tie between utility and happiness. 
uh, an issue to which many economists are returning, including, including Arthur Brooks. Uh, yes, there was the Easterlin paradox, with the implication that people's happiness was influenced by the consumption of others. But beyond that, there was evidence of an adaptation level effect, a self-serving bias, leading to upward comparisons of well-being. Uh, Tibor Skotovsky was writing about that already in the 1970s. Then, too, there was all that money that businesses were spending on advertising and promotions uh, that had no information value and, therefore, in terms of utility theory, should have no serious effects. And yet there was all this money being spent on it. So that, uh, that kind of undermines the idea of stable preferences. Behavioral economics has been around for a while. I remember when one of my undergraduate, I remember one of my undergraduate professors telling us that experiments showed uh, back then, and this was already in the 1960s, that the only economically rational people were graduate students of economics, right? Not professors, graduate students of economics. They're the only economically rational people. By the 1990s, the body of experimental evidence had grown enough to make a noticeable impact on the profession, and the behavioralists had, had added a lot of survey data that confirmed their conclusions. And Daniel Kahneman's Nobel Prize, no doubt, helped a great deal to bring this to the attention of economists as well as the general public. So we now know that people don't always do what's in their economic interest, especially if it conflicts with their sense of fairness or common sense ideas. People are notoriously bad at evaluating risks and tend to be very short-sighted. Economists began to pay attention to puzzling little economic analyses, uh, anomalies that they had ignored for decades. Uh, nowadays, we, we were just reviewing principles textbooks. Every principles textbook on the market today has a box, someplace or other, discussing why people leave tips in restaurants when they're out of town. You would think this was the most important discovery that economists had made in the last 30 years, that people leave tips when they're out of town. So, uh, so that kind of shoots the maximizing behavior idea. Uh, macro phenomena, especially business cycles, have always presented problems for the canonical model. In the early 1970s, the failure of Keynesian stabilization policies gave greater urgency to the search for micro foundations for macro theory. That was the big issue when I was in graduate school, which is a long time ago. Uh, the failure of the new classical medicine to cure the economy in the early 1980s uh, led to even greater despair. Finally, we have come to realize that business cycles have not disappeared, either because they've been smoothed out by Keynesian stabilization policies or because they never happen anyway. It's just a figment of your imagination. Um, they have not disappeared, and they cannot be explained in a world of rational expectations and flexible prices. This also counts against the canonical model. So there goes the market equilibrium idea, right? The revelations of widespread corruption in, American, in the American business community that came at the turn of the century, uh, this century, I think shocked many economists more than they let on. The redesign of executive compensation and corporate governance that has occurred over the last 30 years was supposed to align the incentives of agents with the interests of their principals and high levels of pay were supposed to insulate executives from temptations to be dishonest. Besides, there were the banks, the analysts, the auditors, and the SEC to protect the integrity of capital markets. But all of it failed. It turned out that human perversity could wreck uh, even supposedly self-correcting markets. There have been a lot of talk 
lately about about this notion about whether markets uh, uh, promote virtue or whether they undermine virtue. And of course, the Deidre McCloskey's book, I've started reading it. I haven't gotten very far into it yet. And there's a lot, there's a lot of, of new literature about that. I'm kind of an agnostic on that subject. I haven't made up my mind who's right about it. But uh, I am pretty thoroughly convinced that teaching people the canonical model makes them less virtuous. And so I think as a profession, we have a lot to answer for there. The growth of price discrimination as an acceptable business practice has also helped to undermine the neoclassical paradigm. Many economists have become comfortable with price discrimination as a second best solution to allocation problems in monopolies, especially natural monopolies, but it remains prima facie evidence that monopoly power exists in these markets. And we are talking about some of the more important, rapidly growing, technologically progressive markets, things like internet access and pharmaceuticals. The, no, the notion that all or most markets are perfectly competitive or even workably competitive is more and more difficult to maintain when price discrimination is, is an everyday thing. Uh, then there's the issue of distribution. Uh, the mythology of economics has always been that a growing industrialized economy will tend to become more equal over time. This is the generalization embodied in the Kuznets curve. Uh, but apparently uh, it goes back as far as Adam Smith, uh, uh, Van Til, Kent Van Til in that uh, interesting little book that's out on the table there, um, finds, finds evidence that Smith believed, uh, believed in a Kuznets curve long before Kuznets. Uh, the canonical model is not well suited to handle distribution issues. We all know that. It doesn't say much about distribution at all. But the increased inequality of incomes in our growing U.S. economy over the past 35 years is one of the great public concerns of our time. This reality is inconsistent with the Kuznets generalization. We look for answers, but without considering the role of power in the economy, there are none, and uh, the, the canonical model steers you away from asking any questions about power. As a result of all of this, the neoclassical research program has basically been abandoned. Cutting edge work these days is behavioral economics, it's neurological economics. In a lot of cases, it's specially conceived bits of game theory. Some of it is not economics at all, but freakonomics, the application of clever econometric devices to questions that nobody cares about. Well, okay, it's a little unfair. Sometimes the questions are interesting. Um, but often the questions are outside the traditional subject matter of economics, and they certainly are not informed by insights from the canonical model. The theorizing is small-scale uh, small and ad hoc. Uh, not that this is always bad. It's possible to make progress this way, as I argued at the 10th anniversary conference of, of ACE. Uh, back in Boston in 1993 or whatever it was. That, that, uh, that paper appeared in the ACE Bulletin, the predecessor of Faith and Economics, back in uh, 1994. But we need to ask research questions about important and centrally economic issues, even if we frame them narrowly. Uh, the recent move uh, toward Freakonomics is a big change from uh, what, what George Shackle called the years of high theory. We're, we're not in, in, in that period anymore. While research is one thing and teaching is something else, we still pay our bills by teaching the canonical model to our students, much to their frustration. 
Uh, part of this is the natural conservatism of economics, uh, of economists, uh, the inertia that we all suffer from. Uh, part of it is the natural desire of teachers to take revenge on their students for what their teachers did to them. Um, a very common occurrence. Part of it is our lack of imagination about how you organize an economics course around anything but the canonical model. I mean, we've been teaching this course the same way since Samuelson's first edition, which is about the same time the foundations came out, the late 40s. Well, we've got to stop this. We've got to cut this out. Um, this is my plea for open-mindedness. We need to decide what the great ideas and the great questions of our discipline are. We need to decide what we know about the economy and what we don't know. Then we can organize our courses around that. Uh, the publishers will resist. The publishers are even as more conservative than, than the economists are. But these days, you can publish anything on the web. You can be your own publisher. So I say, go for it. Uh, the other thing that's strange is that economists have not yet learned to be circumspect in basing their policy advice on the old model. Uh, behavioral economics has made some inroads in practical finance, uh, especially issues like the design of retirement savings programs. But many economists still base their mechanism designs on the assumption of pure economic rea uh, rationality and perfect competition. So, for example, people resist the CAFE standards, the corporate average fuel economy standards, um, preferring increases in fuel taxes to induce consumers to buy more fuel-directly efficient cars, which indirectly drives the automakers to provide more fuel-efficient cars. Well, 30 years of short-sighted, irrational decisions by drivers and by the Detroit Three should convince us that fuel taxes alone are unlikely to work. There's still controversy over Sarbanes-Oxley and other new regulations to control abuses in financial markets. The claim is that with all the wonderful new information that's now available to investors on CNBC and things like that, um, uh, investors can discipline management uh, through the marketplace and there's no need for regulation. Uh, well, we saw where that got us. Uh, you, get, you get the point. We have to stop making policy recommendations based on a model that we really don't believe anymore. So what should a new economics looks like, look like? Well, this is where we as Christians have an opening. We can help design the new economics because it's, it's, it's coming and a lot of it is already here. A new economics for Christians should not be vulnerable to the dual critique, but should rather draw on the best of the new research that has taken place outside the neoclassical paradigm. And, there, and I'm counting behavioral economics and I'm counting game theory. First, there needs to be a fuller and more thoughtful understanding of human nature. Uh, people are inescapably, inescapably religious. Uh, John Calvin said that. Bob Dylan said that. You have to be of a certain age to remember, but, uh, but there it is. Uh, people work out their understanding of ultimate values and the spiritual world not just in thought and art and scholarship, but also in their daily economic behavior. This means that although behavior is certainly influenced by economic incentives, it is driven by meaning and purpose, by people's sense of what is good and right, what is helpful and what is fair. It is not always strictly self-interested, but it is informed by duty, by moral obligation, and by love and care for others. 
Much of what is done by specialists in marketing and advertising is based on appeals to these deep-seated motives. And we have a lot to learn not only from our colleagues in psychology and philosophy and theology, but in, in the, business, the business school too. Right? At the same time, the human race has fallen into total depravity. And people respond to temptations as much as to values, emotions, and incentives. Our self-serving bias and distorted perceptions of our own intelligence, strength, and immunity from harm lead us into decisions that are not rational, in the, in, and I mean in the broad sense of the word, not the economic sense of the word, not rational and not wise. There is no salvation apart from divine intervention in the person of Christ Jesus. Therefore, no system of rules, institutions, or policies will guarantee that individuals will always do the right thing or that the right outcome will always be achieved. A humane economics will always seek to understand before it prescribes or instructs. Economic efficiency and growth are not the only values people serve in their economic lives, and they are not the only proper objectives of private or public economic policies. Equally important is justice and fairness, both commutative justice and distributive justice. Sustainability, both economic and ecological, is essential for the survival of the planet and human beings with it. It's not a luxury good that we only buy when we can afford it. In more biblical terms, we call this the stewardship of God's creation, which God declared to be good, though it has become fallen at our hands. As Christians, we also give much attention to the dignity and value of human individuals as bearers of the image of God, however tainted they may be by sin. This leads to a basic concern with, with the quality of human relationships within economic institutions. That's the real objection to, to sweatshops, right? As economists, we are interested in how people organize and manage the use of resources to achieve all of these values. The institutions of an economy give different degrees of power and discretion to people in different positions in society, even as the economy develops with the division of labor. Understanding this is liberating because it means that people have the freedom to make real choices and achieve the ends they believe in. Tony Dawson, the British economic philosopher, said, you know, the paradox of economics is we talk about the science of choice, but when it comes down to it, you know, market equilibrium, there's only one way things can turn out. There are no choices, really. It's all determined. Well, it's not all determined because, we, because people have power, and different people have different amounts of power. And because they have power, they have real choices. And things can turn out differently, depending on how they make those choices. As I said at the, at the 10th anniversary conference, I think that's the most powerful reason to teach economics and to teach business at Christian institutions of higher education. Our students can make a difference. Of course, this also means there's scope for people to behave irresponsibly, in particular to exploit others who have less power. Economists should be able to analyze the distribution and use of economic power. Because we have real power and real choices, the goodness and rightness of economic outcomes cannot be guaranteed by any particular set of economic institutions, rules, or policies. I know that's the third time I've said this, but I think it's really important. I feel strongly about it because I think there are way too many economists who, who kind of unthinkingly assume uh, otherwise. Uh, good and right choices by economic actors are required. Economics is not about achieving a world in which outcomes reflect human desires. It is about moving toward a world 
in which economic outcomes reflect God's will as much as we can discern it in our imperfect state. Well, there's a counter-revolution out there. Um, as I remarked earlier, economists tend to be a conservative bunch, and many within the profession want to save the old paradigm. Part of this is a generational thing. Many who became economists in the prior epoch are loath to see their knowledge go out of date. Many were attracted to economics by the values that inform the old paradigm and still believe in those values. So here's what the counter-revolution looks like. It begins by reasserting the fundamental assumption about human nature, that people are rational and pursue their self-interest. Apparently, irrational behavior can be explained as resulting from a lack of correct information, mistaken reasoning, or misplaced incentives. Such irrational behavior can lead to inefficient economic outcomes. Fortunately, it is within the ability of economists to fix these problems, according to the counter-revolution, when they have the opportunity to do so. Information costs can be reduced, accuracy can be improved, people can be educated to calculate costs and benefits properly, and to ignore emotion and incorrect common sense. Incentive systems can be designed so that rational, well-informed actors will always do the efficient thing, which is the right thing, and efficient outcomes can be achieved. The counter-revolution also maintains that efficiency is the ultimate value, out of which all the others can be bought. You can protect the environment if you want, or treat people well, or redistribute income, but you will pay a price. In principle, market values are supposed to reflect non-pecuniary preferences, but in practice, most economists opt for the growth of income and wealth over all other goals. And the research that they do reflects uh, on, on policy-relevant matters very often reflects those priorities. The counter-revolution holds that market competition or workable competition or potential competition or some kind of competition is enough to keep private accumulation of power in check and prevent exploitation from occurring. This means that for all our talk about the science of choice, in the end, economic outcomes are determinate. It is also this assumption of competition that stands behind the proposition that right incentives mean right outcomes, right conduct and right outcomes. This approach uses the results of the new behavioral economics to avoid the circularity of the neoclassical system, breaking the identity of preference and choice. It is also consistent with the way most economists do analysis. However, it's very hard to reconcile with the empirical evidence because it's trying so hard to rescue the neoclassical paradigm. In addition, it brings out the worst in economics, its paternalism, and its tendency to function like a religion itself by claiming to save us from our sins and create a heaven here on earth. Uh, that, that, by the way, that's why people in other disciplines tend to not like us. It's, it's the arrogance, you know, that doesn't go down well with a lot of other folks. That's The revolution is not finished. The new mainstream research is attractive to heterodox economists, Christian and otherwise, who have long felt that the neoclassical approach was unsatisfactory, or the broadening of the mainstream, or whatever you want to call it, the stuff that's occurring uh, outside, the, outside the canonical model. Economists in general no longer seem troubled by the value-laden nature of any social analysis. The profession has a new openness to different kinds of empirical evidence and to methods and results from other social science disciplines. Thanks to burgeoning research in behavioral economics, many economists are no longer committed to the proposition that all human behavior is driven by the self-interested pursuit of material gain 
or that all markets are at least workably competitive. All of this goes a long way toward addressing the concerns that were expressed in the dual critique. The biggest problem that remains is the continued preoccupation with economic efficiency is the standard for what is good, right, and even normal. It's true that economic analysis enables us to make statements about efficiency of certain outcomes or arrangements that are more specific than we could make about their distributive justice, uh, their human solidarity, or ecological sustainability. Deadweight burdens can be estimated in monetary terms. It gives economists a franchise in public policy debates. It gives economists something to do with their, with their quantitative skills. Furthermore, once multiple goals or values are admitted into the picture, the issue of trade-offs and synergies among the goals arises, and with it, additional complications. This undoubtedly accounts for the continued popularity of the efficiency standard. But this preoccupation comes with a price. In the first place, mainstream work continues to be subject to the criticism that it is disconnected from concerns that are central to Christian social ethics the neglect of justice, stewardship, sustainability, and respect because standard theory doesn't have a way to measure or make concrete statements about them, sparks conflicts between economists and theologians that lead to much misunderstanding and ill feeling. The focus on efficiency also distances economists from public discussion of economic issues and from the everyday concerns of ordinary people, including our students. Most people do not understand what economic efficiency means or the connection between the structure of incentives and efficient outcomes. Probably even some people who've graduated, you know, who've passed the principles of microeconomics course still don't understand these things. Our refusal to say much about distributional or environmental issues convinces many of our students that we are out of touch with reality and useless, if they haven't concluded that already from studying a difficult theory that even the professor thinks is wrong. because distributional and environmental issues are way more important to them. There is a continuing reluctance to incorporate issues of power into economic analysis. This applies mostly to market power, but also to political power and to the power of deep pockets to determine the direction of investments in new technologies in different communities and through philanthropy to different social goals. Without concepts related to power, how can we understand price discrimination, or the increased inequality of wages, or the effects of capital mobility in a globalized economy? The resurgence of game theory in the recent era gives economists some tools to deal with power issues. With the new methodological openness, we could also raid the political scientists' toolbox, since power has also always figured big in their analyses. And as I say, heterodox economists have been talking about power for a long time. But yet economists tend to talk as if all markets are perfectly competitive, all decisions driven by profits, and all outcomes determinate. This is obviously untrue, and the profession risks irrelevance by continuing to base its policy recommendations on these outmoded ideas. So in conclusion, there has been a lot of progress over the last 25 years in the mainstream of the economic, uh, economics profession. But there is still work for Christian heterodox economists to do. The decline of the canonical neoclassical model and the rise of behavioral economics and game theory have made economics more scientific, not less. How scientific we are has nothing to do with how mathematically sophisticated or general or complete our theoretical models are. 
It has to do with how much we know about how the real world works, and we are way ahead of where we used to be. The science of economics is also more open to the concerns of Christians than it was in the old days, and we have to take advantage of that to bring the discipline closer to our concerns. What remains to be done is first to transform how economics is taught at the undergraduate level. What is done now is a crime against learning, and the sooner we overhaul it, the better. Economists working in teaching-oriented Christian colleges are in an excellent position to do something about this. Second, we need to remedy our neglect of power as an important dimension in understanding how the economy works. This is an area in which heterodox economists have specialized, and the new economics can learn much from this body of work. The tools of game theory offer the possibility of bringing new rigor to this aspect of economics. But perhaps most important, we also need to learn how to relate our new knowledge to both sophisticated policy discussions and to the everyday concerns of ordinary people. Over the last six decades or so, economists have developed a lot of bad habits that we need to shed. Economists still pretend to be doing value-neutral analysis when we all know there's no such thing. Economists pretend that the only issue is prosperity and ignore equality, sustainability, and charity. There's no time like now to begin the process of attuning economics to the great questions that today's world raises for Christians and for everyone. Thank you very much. Answers are another matter. That's right. Who will ask the first one? John, I appreciate your uh, attention to some of the issues that uh, you know we seem like we've neglected. But it's interesting that you talk about how we've neglected power and then issues of equality and sustainability. Um, isn't the public choice revolution quite a bit about uh, power and coercive power, or use of coercive power? And so in some sense, doesn't that get at a lot of those sorts of issues that were um, perhaps neglected for a period of time? One of the things that impresses me about some of the heterodox economics is it talks a lot about a lot of the problems, but then whenever we start talking about solutions, we're either talking about some sort of institutional mechanism and the public choice revolution and the new institutional economics has spent a lot of time thinking about how those particular institutions work. So I'm wondering what your reaction is to that, what I would call, attention to power. Um, I, I think that there are some useful things in public choice economics, I, I, um, and, and certainly some useful things in new institutional economics, too. And uh, I, I'm all for appropriating those useful things. I think um, when, when public choice economics sort of turns me off is when it turns deterministic. When it says, well, government is sort of always captured by special interests and therefore it can never do anything right. You know, it's, it's, that, it's that sort of deterministic streak that it gets into. And I think that's a hangover from the determinism of the canonical model. It, 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 public choice economics tries to borrow techniques from, from the canonical theory 
that get in, in trouble because they're because it pushes it in this direction of there can only be one equilibrium. And uh, but there's a lot about there's a lot about those strains of thought that I think is useful. Can you give us your interpretation on um, um, the virtues of uh, teaching or not teaching uh, Pareto optimality as a goal, uh, and in, in, in its stead um, um, having a preference for socially de uh, desirable states as a steady state? Okay. Well, I can. I can. Talk, I. I don't know about. Well. I think there's something behind your question when you talk about a steady state, socially desirable position, um, and I'm not, not exactly sure what that's about, but I can answer the rest of your question. Um, I've given up uh, talking about, um, in, in the one semester survey course that we, that we do for non-majors, I've given up talking about Pareto optimality or efficiency at all. I talk about uh, the core of uh, an exchange economy. And uh, I got that idea from an article in the Journal of Economic Perspectives, and I can't remember the author's name now. But it's, um, I think, talking about, about the core um, and, and talking about whether there are lots of points in the core or only one point in the core or no points in the core is, uh, is a useful way to go, uh, to go about it. And, it. and it's obviously sort of importing some game theory into it uh, at that stage. In the two-semester principles course, I feel like I have to talk about Pareto optimality, and I'd rather not because it takes a lot of time, and especially if you do it right. That is to say, you not only talk about it, but you talk about the critique of it and, and all the problems with it, and then and it confuses people no end. Um, and, but but at, at that stage there, you know, I've got to follow the, follow the trend. I don't guarantee that this will be a perfectly well-formed question. <laughs> um, I'm sort of wondering uh, what, what we're left with. Are we uh, left without models and only with narrative? Are we left with a hodgepodge of things, some models that are based on some principles of human behavior broader, presumably, than the standard model, um, and, and with a pick-and-choose sort of thing? Uh, or? Uh, you know, of course, one of the, one of the, one of the um, uh, features of the standard model that attracts people is that it's, it's basically one, one coherent picture that explains everything, or one coherent approach to, that, achieve, that, 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 that purports to explain everything. And, and, and I think you're quite right that uh, that's, there's a bit of, uh, well, arrogance and, and so forth in that, uh, and that we need something else. But I, I guess I'm just wondering what we're left with. Uh, is it... Is there something coherent that we're left with, or are we left with a, a bunch of, of um, small explanations? Instead of one grand overarching meta-narrative, meta we, are we left with a bunch of smaller narratives? Can you work with that question? Uh, yeah. Um, yes, we are, we, we're left with a bunch of small narratives, small models, small theories. We don't have a grand explanation for anything anymore. But the postmodernists say that there are no grand explanations of anything, of, of every, you know, 
grand meta narratives that that encompass everything. Um, and most of the rest of the academic world has been doing without them uh, for quite a while now and doing just fine, thank you. Um, there are a lot of things about, you know, when, when, he, when students come to an economics course, they really expect to learn about the economy. And one of the reasons they hate economics is because we don't teach them about the economy. We teach them about this imaginary world, about this canonical model, which may or may not have anything to do with the economy. There's a lot that we know about the economy, and that's what we ought to be teaching students. We know that uh, about comparative advantage, specialization, and trade, right? I think that's really the, the most important, most fundamental idea that economists have ever come up with. And we need to teach students that uh, without all of the, you know, twice differentiable quasi-convex utility functions and production functions and all that kind of stuff. It's really not that complicated an idea. But, but we very often don't get it across because we surround it with all this other stuff. Uh, there are a lot of other, you know, things that we know, and they're they're not uh, they're not trivial. They're important, and uh, they may not be connected in quite the way that we used to pretend they were. But um, but we know quite a bit, and we can we can teach it to we can teach it to students, and they'll be interested for a change. I completely agree that we need to do better in economics programs and teaching students about the economy. Um, I think that we assume that they actually read the newspaper and, and they don't necessarily. Um, well, that's one thing we got to teach them, to read the newspaper. Well, to read whatever news source they, they get, but something better than CNN. Yeah. Uh, uh, two comments. One, as a, as a macroeconomist, I was very surprised to hear you say that most macroeconomic, that the standard macroeconomic model assumes perfect competition and flexible prices. The standard macroeconomic model assumes imperfect competition and some version of rigid prices. And the second point, um, how do you, rather put it, I, I don't see how you uh, put together Christian philosophy and postmodernism. It just doesn't add up to me. Well, I'll ask you to fill that out in a minute. Um, uh, on the macro thing, um, yeah, uh, you're, you're right. Macro th any macro theory that can explain business cycles has to, has to get away from the assumption of flexible prices uh, and, and or um, uh, rational expectations. But that's what we learned from that long search to try to, to, try to meld the two, right? If the canonical model was supposed to be perfectly general, it should explain business cycles too, but it doesn't. And to my mind, that counts against its validity. So that's one of the things that I say. You know, when, when people finally realized there are no micro foundations for macroeconomics, I think that was, that was yet another strike, another blow at the, at the canonical model. Um, the the postmodern um, the, the postmodern philosophers that I like uh, fall into this uh, category of postmodern realism, which is to say they believe there is a real world out there. They believe that um, that there are truths about the real world. There's there's sort of God's truth out there, 
And then the question is, how do we, how do we come to know about it? And when it comes to the question of how do we come to know about God's world, that's when you, that's when you get to the question of, well, what's your perspective? I mean, what, what you learn about God's world depends on where you're learning it from, uh, including your social position and your, your culture and your, you know, all the stuff that goes into making you, you. Um, that's not to say there isn't some reality. That's not to say there isn't any truth. There is reality and there is truth. It's just that we can't know it uh, the way we once thought we could. I think that uh, criticisms about uh, a model are, are pretty helpful. My concern here is that the model, the canonical model that you refer to, has almost uh, just seems like a hyper straw man of what I see going on in the profession today. So you seem to make a lot of broad, sweeping generalizations that don't seem to be borne out by the economists that I interact with, um, making statements that behavioral and game theory are not part of uh, uh, neoclassical economics. Or most of the people that I know who, all the people I know who do game theory or behavioral, put that in the framework. They're not trying to over. You gave the picture that the canonical model is going down, behavioral is going up. All the behavioralists I know talk about it being in the context of the canonical model. I mean, they don't use the term canonical model, but they don't see this as something that's overturning it. They see this as a way to fill this out. Um, making statements that we say nothing about environment. I mean, that's a huge growing area of research that's quite vibrant. I mean, the economics of religion and, and, and environment and health, these seems to be uh, very vibrant, growing quickly, that we only look at things that care about monetary gain. Um, there, there are hundreds of papers that are looking at uh, health outcomes and uh, a whole array of things that go beyond money. Um, to say that we ignore charity when we had Arthur Brooks up here talking about charity earlier today, um, you know, say that efficiency that all economists think efficiency means that it's morally right or wrong. I mean, we have um, examples going back to the 70s, time on the cross, where they're saying that this is a very efficient solution, but this is no way moral, in in no way right. Uh, so I, I just don't see the. It's almost like you're setting up a complete straw man. Um, so I, I could go on there about another 10, but. Um, do, and do you feel like you're giving an accurate representation of, I mean, these broad generalizations that you make seem to, to not really have a, that, that's not the way that I see a lot of economists doing their work today. Mm -hmm. It seems, it's, I, I don't know what, it's, it's not the economists that I interact with. To say there's no perfect, or we all assume perfect competition for everything. I and mean, there's, again, tremendous literatures that, that go beyond, so I, I, I don't know. Yeah. Okay. I, let, let me let me try to get at some of that. Um, well, first of all, I think there's a difference between, you know, what's going on in cutting edge economic research, and what's going on when economists are called in as consultants on policy issues, you know, or when when people write about about current issues for the Wall Street Journal or something like that. Um, I think. The, the cutting-edge research is, is 
looking less and less to the canonical model for its agenda. And um, because it's less and less relevant. Now, now there, there, there's a whole literature about why that is. I mean, I'm not the only person who's noticed this. Uh, I, don't, I don't claim any originality for that observation, and there are a bunch of different explanations for it. But nevertheless, when it comes to that cutting-edge agenda, that's, that's clearly the case. Now, when it comes to the policy-related sort of consultancy advocate role that economists play, there's this old habit we have of reaching back to that framework and and it's it gets it's very predictable and it's very you know and and I think it leads us very often in the wrong direction it it asks it it gets us asking the wrong questions and it gets us um, you know not thinking about really what the objectives of the policy are supposed to be because we always think of it in terms of efficiency um, now you can think of you, you can think of these things like behavioral economics and and game theory and things like that as broadening the mainstream. That's the language people have been using at this conference quite a bit. And if that's the way you want to think about it, okay. Um, but you know, really, the core that, that that core piece of the mainstream that that you know, in my era, was where it all started, um, is less and less relevant. Uh, what else was I going to say? Um, hmm. Oh, uh, yeah, there, there are some people in the behavioral field, uh, behavioral and neurological economics field, who want to try to cast their results and their research in terms of the canonical model, in terms of some kind of maximizing some kind of function under constraint. And I think what's happening is that this is, it's, it's getting to be like, uh, you know, the hypercycles and epicycles that people use to try to explain anomalies in, 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 in orbits of planets back in the days when the, when the Ptolemaic theory was on its way out. It's, it's trying to take the data that's really inconsistent with the old model and sort of rejigger the old model to make it look like it's consistent. And that's getting less and less convincing. Um, there are whole volumes of that stuff now. And um, it's, I, I, the, the more you read of it, the more you realize that this is just more evidence that the old model is of, de of really decreasing relevance, it seems to me. Now, you know, this is, this is in a lot of ways a personal view of things. And, um, and I'm trying to persuade you, and I may be overstating things a little. Um, but um, I think I, I, I think from where I sit, that's the way it looks. So I'll start by saying I found it odd to hear a professor from Calvin College complaining about deterministic models. Um, <laughs> there's a disconnect in my mind. <laughs> but 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 I guess my, my my question is this. So I'll start by saying I'm a neoclassical economist. I like the canonical model. I like the broadening of the canonical model. I like all of this sort of stuff. And so one way to hear your, your, your remarks are there's an interesting debate here between somebody that believes like I do and somebody believes like you do about what would be good economics. And that's an interesting debate, and it's been going on for a very long time in the literature. But you seem to be adding a little bit extra to it. And in some sense, what you seem to be saying is, well, when I say I'm a neoclassical economist that likes the canonical model, I'm sinning. That, that somehow or another, you've got Christian economics on your side, 
And if you've got Christian economics on your side, then necessarily I have non-Christian economics on my side. And, and I guess I'm wondering, if, if you're not saying I'm sinning, that I really need to reform and I need to come to Jesus and learn better economics, why do you want to attach Christianity to your particular take on good economic theory? Why is your theory Christian and mine not Christian? I don't think you're sinning. I think you're just mistaken. <laughs> you know, I mean... Um, when I try to put these ideas together, when I, try to, when I try to think about economic questions that are really important in the context of the canonical model, I find I can't get very far. And when I see people using the canonical model to try to address these questions, I find myself saying, they're asking the wrong question, or they're getting the wrong result. Why aren't they thinking of this? Why aren't they thinking of that? Why are they bending over backwards to invent some mythical quantity that's going to explain this result when it's perfectly obvious that it's because there's an imbalance of power? You know? Um, now, I think that once you let go of the canonical model, it's easier to incorporate concerns that arise for me out of my Christian faith that arise for other people out of their commitment to secular humanism, that, arise, that for other people arise out of some other source, who knows what, Buddhism or Islam or whatever. Um, that's, that's their business. I'm a Christian. This to me is what I've learned from my religious experience and what I would like to incorporate in the way I, the way I do economics. And I find that, that the, the traditional model, the mainstream model, which, you know, I, I, I'll okay, I'll tell you my Paul Samuelson story. I, I, you know, I studied at MIT a long time ago. I had classes with Paul Samuelson. And one time, one day we're talking about uh, uh, von Neumann, Morgenstern, cardinal utility theory, another thing that's really passe. Um, so uh, Samuelson turns around and says, you all learned about von Neumann, Morgenstern, Cardinal Utility Theory last semester from Professor Hall, right? And we said no. And he said, why not? Uh, and one of my classmates piped up and said, well, he said he doesn't believe in it anymore. And Samuelson looked straight at him and said, you mean I have to believe this stuff to teach it? <laughs> and uh, I don't want to ever be in that... Well, I teach students a lot of stuff I don't believe, but I don't want to ever be in the position of not teaching my students things I do believe, things I think are true. I believe it is time to call it a night. Thank you all. Thanks to John Teamstra. It's been a big day.